as we look at the scriptures, I'd ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. So I was thinking and meditating the scripture this week, I realized again that our life is full of choices. Perhaps you're not fully aware of how pervasive choice is for our lives. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, said that every act is an act of self-sacrifice. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. Just as when you marry one person, you give up all the rest. And former generations, uh, would be shocked with all the choices that we have today, from choosing our job to choosing where you live, choosing your spouse, and even for some, choosing exactly when you want to have kids. Our former generations didn't have these same choices, but we seem to just move right past it without thinking twice. We are a, a world, a, a country full of choices. I remember coming back from Sweden just after a year there and just walking into the grocery store and going to the cereal aisle. There's a whole aisle just for cereal. 200 choices. And choice is even championed as that great and final issue of this life, death. Increasingly, we're told that we have the right to choose our own time and method even through doctor-assisted suicide. And we have the option of choosing the time and method of death for others. Rodney Clapp, writing about our love for choices, says, Trained as consummate consumers, we learn to adopt even religious faiths tentatively with an eye to new options that may appear around the bend. No wonder we find it less and less credible to think anything might be worth dying for. But if nothing is worth dying for, is anything worth living for? Devoid of substantive purpose, our lives too easily denigrate into bland avoidance of pain and the unending search for new amusements. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, too many of us worship at the altar of options, choices. How many of you heard this phrase or even uttered it yourself? I just want to keep my options open assuming that no one would disagree with such wisdom. Yet we should not be surprised with the law of diminishing returns afflicts our decisions. The more we choose, the less each choice seems to mean. So as our choices grow rapidly in the mundane, the act of choosing itself, whether directed to the mundane or monumental, become an act of self-expression, of vote-casting, of, of what feels best for us right now. We can also possibly just change our minds tomorrow. If this is how you feel, then you might be shocked to hear what Jesus is going to teach us in the Gospel of Luke. See, Jesus doesn't lay out a plethora of options, of choices before these fishermen. We ultimately see that there's only one choice, one decision that needs to be made. And Jesus doesn't stand before them as a cold and personal sergeant demanding perfection for life. Instead, he stands as a gentle savior, offering himself as friend and captain for their life. And so here's the main idea that I want you to get in these first 11 verses. So if you're to write down anything this morning, make sure you write down this. Jesus doesn't flee from sinners, but seeks disciples to save and send for the glory of God. Jesus doesn't flee from sinners, but seeks disciples to save and send for the glory of God. And in this story, we're going to see an alarming story of these competent fishermen here in Luke 5. 
and, and Jesus meeting them where they're at. And, and there are four points this morning that they outline about disciples and what they are. Disciples listen, disciples obey, disciples understand, and disciples treasure. So first, disciples listen. Look at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on to hear the word of God, he sat by the lake of Gesenaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Jesus' ministry at this point had gained a lot of traction, and crowds were coming, flocking to hear him teach. And I would guess that the reason why this is happening here on the boat is the synagogues weren't weren't able to hold all the people, and so he's pushed to find a a larger space to teach. And and they swarm to him in front of this lake, which is the the Gesenaret, which is another name for for Galilee, the large lake in northern Israel. And God has sent his son to preach, so they're there to hear the word of God. Jesus' words are the word of God. So every time you hear Jesus speak, you hear God speak. The problem here is that the crowd was growing and not everyone could hear. And so this is what happens. Jesus uses Peter's boat as a pulpit and to throw the net of the gospel over his hearers. And Jesus' words most likely would have, from the boat, bounced off the sea so that everyone could hear what he was saying. And so the first point that we learn here is to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to listen to him. A disciple is someone who hears the word of God. And we find at the beginning of this chapter 5, it's a large group pressing into Jesus to hear what he has to say. And so if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to hear what he says. And for us today, it means reading what God says to us through the Bible. It means studying the Bible, taking it in, filling our mind with his words. It means listening to the Bible when it's preached, active listening. And I found that when I was growing in the Lord, it was usually connected to the Sunday morning sermon. I've been listening to sermons since I was nine years old, but I didn't really digest sermons until I was in college. And the difference for me was I started taking notes. So every week I would have a journal that I would take notes, which would help me listen to what God was saying through the preacher. So some of you would be really helped in your life if you took time each week to sit down and take notes when the sermon is preached. That's why Kristen goes to the effort every week in the office to send out the the bulletin and email and then include a, a sheet that you can print out with the outline and notes. Or you can have your own journal. But I, I, friends, I think it would be helpful to you. I am also convinced, though, that you would grow more in your understanding of the word if you spent time reading the passage before it's preached. That's why we publish a sermon schedule ahead of time. I spend hours every quarter planning out the sermon schedule for this very reason. Trust me, there's other things I could do with my time. I could have fantasy football this year, but I set it aside to do a sermon schedule because I want our people in the word before I preach. In fact, that's on my list this week. Kristen asked me on Thursday. I haven't seen the schedule. Kristen, it's coming this week. For the rest of the year, 2020, I'll sit down and I'll plan out the sermon schedule so that you, as a listener, can come prepared every week to know what will be preached. 
But here's what I do, okay? Because even though I'm the preacher and spend a lot of hours in that text, I, I make a note on my phone of the schedule, and I pull it up every Monday morning, every week, to look at the passage, and I'm going to preach, because I forget after I make the schedule, and I read it every day on top of my regular devotional reading. And then, regardless if I'm the preacher or, or whoever else is the preacher, I want to meditate on the passage before it's preached. I want to listen to God's word. I want to press into the word of God. And I want the word of God to press into me. So friends, do you press into the word of God? If the only time you hear the word of God is on Sundays, then you're missing vital opportunities throughout the week to learn of God and to understand how he thinks and what he does. Do you hunger for the word of God like these people do? Does your faith waver with the changing winds of this world in our lives, with trials coming? Then you press into Jesus, friends, and listen to what he says. Romans says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We press into the word. And so if you want to be a disciple, a Christian, so every time I say disciple, think Christian, you have to listen to the word of God. We'll look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Let's be clear, Jesus wasn't hoping for a catch. He knew there would be a catch. Jesus knows their vocation better than they do, and he knows their needs better than they do. But what will Peter do? That's my second point. First, disciples listen. Second, disciples obey. Verse 5, And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Peter is basically passive-aggressive with a hint of self-righteousness. He had been up all night with his friends, his, his co-workers, frustrated the lack of success from work. And his family would suffer for the lack of fish. They didn't catch anything the night before. And this experience would put any fisherman in a stinky mood. No one likes to get on-the-job advice from someone in a different line of work. Gavin has invited me, not this season yet, but last season to go watch football. And even on the sidelines, how would Gavin feel if I walked up when it's third and 21 telling him, you know, this is what you should do, Gavin. You should run the ball with your center. A few of you know football. It he would look at me foolishly, like, why would you do that? Go away. Frustrated. You don't know. This isn't your line of work. They pay me to do the coaching. This is, this is Jesus walking into Peter's line of work. Peter's the professional. Jesus can preach. Peter's going to fish. Peter knows the boat. He knows the nets. He knows the water. The best time to get a catch for a fisherman was at night, not during the day. So you can understand a little bit the, the mindset of Peter coming to this, a little annoyed. By climbing into Peter's boat and giving orders, Jesus was invading Peter's personal space. He's invading Peter's work. He's going to teach him something about work and worship. See, before this day, Peter's motive for letting down his nets had always been for the obvious and natural hope, the hope of catching fish and making a profit to support his family. Nothing sinful there. 
good things to do. But this day, no hope for fish or prophet. No, he lets down his net for another reason, for another, another motive entirely. He lets down his net simply because Jesus Christ told him to. In obedience to Christ, in order to please him. I don't believe for a second that Peter thought they would get any fish. He, he just obeyed. Our sinfulness as Christians is perhaps seen most frequently not on the occasional misdemeanors of our mouth and actions, but regularly in the substandard quality of our work. And how long has it been since we went to work, not for material wealth that we would get, but going for the good of others and primarily to the obedience of the Lord to please him? Peter learned, I believe, that day what Paul would teach to the Colossian church. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. See, Peter simply responds, at your word, I will let down the nets. At your word. He takes Jesus at his word. He's willing to do what Jesus said, even before he was sure it was the right thing to do. He's skeptical, I'm sure. All the disciples had, had, had doubts here. But he, he obeys. See, Jesus was teaching Peter, your whole life belongs to me, even your fishing, even your work. Jesus cares about our work. He cares about what you do with your life. He cares about how you do in school, how you approach it, how you complete it. And whatever Peter understood about Jesus in this moment, he understood one thing, that Jesus had authority, and he, he says, at your word. He responds to his word. And friends, the right response to Jesus is always obedience. J.C. Ryle says, we're meant to learn the blessing of ready, unhesitating obedience to every plain command of Christ. Disciples of Jesus learn to obey his word. If you say you're a Christian, you obey what Christ commands. And he's going to challenge these people in the coming chapters. In fact, in Luke 6, 46, is why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? See, friends, Jesus' word requires the response of obedience. So do we resist Jesus' word? Do we flinch when Jesus commands us to do something? If it's true, friends, you're going to be very uncomfortable when we get to chapter 6. It's dangerous to listen to Jesus without deciding to obey everything that he says. And if people are unwilling to follow Jesus in everything, that it'd be better for them not to listen, not to come to church at all. And I know that sounds harsh, but you understand that God will hold you accountable for what you hear and how you respond. So Jesus is not suggesting options for us to choose. Jesus is not a choice himself and a smorgasbord of spiritual leaders. He is God. He's the only one. And so friends, do you treat Jesus as an advisor for life or the master of your life? Our listening needs to be more than just ear listening. It needs to get into our head where it can be critically grasped and then it needs to get into our heart where it stays and it fleshes out in obedience. Jesus' word requires the response of obedience. Jesus will not be relegated to a counselor or a guide for your life. 
He is king. Nothing else. Nothing less. And things happen, friends, when we take Jesus at his word. We, we cannot be his disciple if we do not obey his word. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you don't obey the words of Jesus. And so pray when you hear the word. Pray that you would obey the word. So disciples listen and obey. Third, disciples understand. They're, they're humbled. Look at verse 6. And when he had, they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they sing, singled, sing, singled, I can't say the word. They motioned to their partners in the other boat to come and help. And, and they came and filled the boats, both boats, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. I find it interesting that the sermon that Jesus just preached didn't convict Peter of his sinfulness. He heard the sermon, I'm sure, like the rest, but it didn't affect him like seeing Jesus work. The nets are bursting, the boats are sinking, but Peter didn't see the fish. All he could see was Jesus. Human beings are always terrified in the presence of the holy. Peter here was not only discovering who Jesus was, he's discovering who he was. And Peter was desperately uncomfortable. The transcendent standard of all righteousness and purity blazed before Peter's very eyes. People seem to have an appreciation for moral excellence as long as it's removed far enough, a safe distance from them. But here's Peter standing face to face with God. R.C. Sproul said, how many people still have that posture towards Christ, still do everything they can to keep him at a distance, to keep him removed from their thoughts, because the very idea of Christ makes them uncomfortable. Holiness is scary, but oh, that all of us would understand the grace, mercy, and compassion that is borne by that same man of holiness who says to people when he makes them uncomfortable, fear not, peace be with you. And, and to think, a few moments earlier, Peter, relying on his expert fishing knowledge, had presumed to tell Jesus that it was unwise, really, to, to let down the nets. I believe in that moment, it made Peter so aware of his sinfulness that he felt unfit to be in the same boat as Jesus. And Peter recognizes Jesus' authority. The chaos of what just happened becomes a distant second to the primary issue of sorting out where he stands with Jesus. Peter understood that he was in the presence of someone perfectly holy and that by contrast, he himself was totally depraved. And so he falls down and confesses his sin. And friend, if you haven't come to understand who Jesus is and repent of your sin, you cannot be a disciple of Christ. One day, perhaps today, Jesus will get into your boat and he will mess with things. And he will tell you to do something that you think is just plain nuts. 
and he will show himself to you. And more importantly, he will show you yourself. Man, I've been praying that Jesus would get into your boat. For whatever reason, on Saturday nights, I can't sleep. I try to go to bed at 10 o'clock, and I just lay there with my eyes open, and I just pray that God would open the eyes and hearts of the people that gather. And I was praying last night, God, Jesus, jump in the boat of someone here this morning. And he would just mess, mess so much of what you think is right because you decided to follow someone else other than Jesus. And with grace and love, he jumps in your boat so that you would turn to him in faith and trust in him. So perhaps by God's grace, Jesus has jumped into your boat and you realize that you cannot follow Jesus on your own terms. It cannot be done. You have to follow Jesus on his terms. And that means that he has lordship over your entire life. He is lord over your family, over your work, over everything. There is no salvation for those that believe Jesus isn't lord over all. And perhaps you sit and listen this morning, and everyone knows you're a Christian, except you know yourself to not be a Christian. And you're fearful that continuing to live this fake life is becoming too much. You fear that your parents will be disappointed or this church family or your extended family. And you've been faking the Christian life. And this morning, perhaps God is getting a hold of you to think rightly about your life. And I implore you, friend, to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus this morning. See, when you see your sin, you might want to run away from Jesus like Peter. And he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He, he couldn't bear the weight of a holy God seeing him for who he truly was. And when he understood himself, he was convinced there was no way that Jesus would want a relationship with him. But friends, Jesus never leaves a sinner who truly repents. Never. It's only those that we will find in the gospel, it's only those who never humble themselves that Jesus turns, that Jesus rejects. Jesus doesn't flee from humble sinners. No, instead, he moves closer and closer to them. And he will reassure him in verse 10 to not be afraid. Peter was convinced that he was too sinful to be useful to Jesus, but he's wrong. Jesus has only one type of human for his glory, sinners. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, friends. We all come the same way to Jesus. Jesus doesn't flee from humble sinners, but he seeks disciples to save and send for the glory of God. So let me ask, when did Jesus take over your boat? Kids, are you still listening? I know you're doing really well. 
I want you to ask one question of mom and dad today, okay? When did Jesus take over your boat? Adults, find someone today. What, what a, the best way to spend your afternoon? Not on the news, not in entertainment, talking about Jesus. When did Jesus take over your boat? When did Jesus come in and invade your life? We were moving along in life, doing school, doing work, doing marriage and kids, and now Jesus jumps in and disrupts everything, and we're never the same. See, friends, you can't meet Jesus and walk away the same. And don't be afraid. If you're here, Jesus is not disgusted with you. He knows you and loves you. He's jumped into your boat to redeem you and to redirect you for God's glory. So how do you respond? Well, last, disciples treasure. Disciples treasure Jesus. Verse 10, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus doesn't scold the humble sinner. Jesus doesn't depart, even though Peter asked him to. He doesn't even criticize or correct Peter here. Jesus brings him in and tells him not to fear, but then he's redirecting his life. Remember, I said that once you meet Jesus, nothing stays the same. And Jesus says, from now on, you'll be catching men. And this is a confusing sentence in Greek. It's a combination of two Greek words, Zeus, alive, and agrian, which to catch or hunt. So the exact sense is to catch alive. He's saying, from now on, you will catch men alive. I don't think we should put that on the sign at the road. (laughs) Because it doesn't sound good unless you understand the plight of all humans. You and I are we're headed to hell, to pain and separation and trouble until someone rescued us out. See, this isn't what fishermen do. They, they, they look to catch fish alive and then kill them and then eat them. But Jesus is calling Peter to a new way of fishing. Rescuing people from the deep sea of their sin and bringing them safely to the shore of salvation in Jesus Christ. See, disciples of Jesus treasure him and they want others to treasure him also. And so a disciple is naturally given to evangelism. This is the call in every Christian's life. And sometimes when we talk about evangelism, people respond like I say, you need to go to the dentist. Oh, I have to do evangelism. And you equate that to a root canal. But God didn't call you to save people. That's his job. He calls you to cast the net of the gospel. And God would bring the fish. We're called to keep sharing our faith, to keep living out what we believe. And we witness to others and how we speak about God and how we live for him. What God does with our witness is up to him. But our business as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, is to keep doing it. And so practically in our life, and what this looks like as a Christian is that we should join a church. We should commit to a body of believers and ministry locally and globally. And it means you commit to, to inviting friends and family to church. And friends, I promise you that the gospel will be preached here in this pulpit as long as the Lord allows me to serve this church. So invite, bring them here. 
And it means praying for people who need to understand God's great love for them in Jesus Christ. It means that as disciples, we know the gospel. God, man, Christ response. We know this at moments notice so that we can share with others. It means we sacrifice time and money to serve the church, to serve what Christ is doing for the furtherance of the gospel. This is what it means to to live passionately following Jesus, treasuring him as his disciples. And you see the response here in verse 11. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Man, I was thinking this week, 1990, a few of you remember this, Stephen Curtis Chapman put an album out for the sake of the call. How many years? 30 years ago. Man, I'm old. 30 years ago. As a teen, I remember thinking of this. This is, it's amazing, astounding, actually, that all this happens, and they, they say they, they leave everything and follow Jesus. And here we learn of the holiness of Jesus Christ that's so stunningly beautiful that it causes men to leave everything to follow him. The beauty of Christ causes us to leave the simpleness of this life for the extravagance of the life to come. See, I told you, meeting Jesus changes the direction of your life. These men left behind career aspirations to follow him. They left behind the safety and security of living the way that they've always lived. I mean, can you imagine Peter's wife after this monumental catch of fish? Pete, we've made it big. We've got so much fish. You can buy a bigger boat. You can grow the business. We can get a bigger place. Peter, this is huge for us. Peter leaves it all. Perhaps... I think that God gave such a large amount of fish so that the spouses would be taken care of when they went to serve with Jesus. They leave behind their call on their life. They have a new master over their life. Before Jesus, your life was your own. You, You called the shots. But when you become a Christian, you submit everything to Christ. And he has the right over the direction of your life. This is what it means to be a disciple, to be a Christian. I'm being emphatic here, friends, because there is a lie that we believe that we can be a Christian and just do whatever we want. I don't read that anywhere. I know it's a lie in my own heart that I want to believe because I think I know what's, what's best. Because I want what's comfortable. Because I want what's easy. But that's not what we see disciples doing. They're able to leave the the normal and the comfortable because they treasure Jesus above everything and everyone else. And following him would be the greatest adventure of their life. But it wouldn't be the easiest.
In a parallel gospel account, Matthew says to him, come follow me. Come, come follow me because I'm the king you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything. Follow me because I, I bring good news of salvation, not advice on how to live. Follow me for real life. And I know I've shared this before. It's been a couple years, but George MacDonald wrote a children's book 150 years ago called The Princess and the Goblin. I don't know if you've read that. It's not a very long book. There's multiple books, but the, the short of the one is about 100 pages. And in this short book, there's a princess, and she has a fairy grandmother. And the fairy grandmother at one point says, because there are goblins in this fairy tale, she says, you're, you're in great deal of danger. When the goblins come to get you, I want you to come find me. And, and the princess says, well, it's very hard to find you, grandmother. And here's what the grandmother says. This is what I want you to do. She brings out a little ball of thread and a ring, and she gives the princess a ring and puts the ring on her finger and attaches the thread to the ring. And she puts the other end of the thread in her, her cabinet. And she says, now when you're in real trouble, take off the ring and put it under your pillow and feel for it and you'll be able to feel the thread. And nobody else will be able to feel it. And I want you to do is I want you to follow the thread to me. But I want you to know something. The thread will take you in many directions and many places that seem absolutely dangerous and absolutely wrong. But whatever you do, follow the thread. If you leave the thread, you'll be lost. But if you hold on to the thread, you'll be fine. You'll find me, and I'll be at the other end. And the way the story goes, you can imagine this happens. She's in real danger. She puts the ring on underneath her pillow, and she feels the thread. And every other time she'd ever found her grandmother, she just went to her own house in the attic. But the thread now takes her out of the door, takes her up a mountain, and right into the goblin's den. And she says, I, I don't get this. She tries to go back, but when you try to go back, the thread disappears. She has to follow the thread forward. And it turns out she actually ends up rescuing one of the heroes in the book, Curdy. She didn't even know that he was in danger. Curdy says, how did you find me? And she says, well, I have this thread and I followed the thread. And he can't feel the thread. He doesn't understand. He asks again, well, how did you get, get here? And she says, I followed the thread. And at one point, she holds the thread, and it seems to be going in the wrong direction. And, and he mocks her. You can't go that way. I, I tried to go that way to get out. And she turns and says, I have to follow the thread. See, no matter how stupid it looks, no matter if it's suicidal, she has to keep her finger on the thread. She, she has to follow it, and she begins to cry. She's eight years old. And he says, he, he relents, all right, all right. And they find their way out. And finally, it brings her to her grandmother because the, the thread proves to be trustworthy because the grandmother is trustworthy and she's safe. Why do I share that? You know, when the disciples left their boats to follow Jesus, they had no idea where he was going. They didn't know where they would stay. I mean, they see Jesus command a crowd preaching to the masses, so maybe they think he's going from one strength to the next strength. They had no idea. I mean, friends, imagine sitting with an eight-year-old and ask them to write out what it will take for them to finish all of their schooling and become a doctor. Say, like, give me all the steps. And you can't read it. It doesn't make any sense because it's nowhere near reality. But when we begin to follow Jesus, we're that eight-year-old trying to plan out our life. And you don't know how far you have yet to go. 
But Jesus calls each and every one of us to follow him. And he won't tell us the way. He won't give us a map. He wants us to journey with him, to trust him. But he doesn't want us to turn to the left or the right, but to stay with him. He wants us to put him first, to keep our eyes on him, to stay close, to keep up with him even when disappointments come and injustice happens. And when we keep close to Jesus and following him, he's going to take us through hard places. And we may ask, why are you taking us this way? But even then, we're to trust him. Friends, the cost of discipleship is great. But the cost of not following Jesus is so much greater. So when your child dies unexpectedly or your parent, keep following Jesus. When your spouse bails on the marriage, keep following Jesus. When you lose everything of substance, keep following Jesus. When all of your dreams of how you thought life would go are crushed, keep following Jesus. The path he takes you on may seem treacherous and suspect, but we're to keep following him. Even when we think the direction is wrong and we want to turn the other way, we keep following him. We have to give up following ourselves and keep following Jesus. George MacDonald said in another one of his writings, he said, quote, you'll be dead so long as you refuse to die. And what he means here is you'll be dead as long as you refuse to die to yourself. So follow the thread. Keep trusting in Jesus. And I know all this seems hard. Some of you are facing difficulties of which I don't fully understand. You don't see very far ahead of, in front of you. So how do you keep doing this? You remind yourself that Jesus himself did absolutely everything he's calling us to do. When he called his disciples to leave their boats and follow him, it's only after he left his father's throne to come to earth. Jesus is following God and he calls us to join him in that pursuit. Even when there's a dead end, God will work. And Jesus followed the thread all the way to the cross. And even then it seemed like it was over. It was horrific and bloody and tragic and it seemed like it was done. But God always moved forward, never backwards. And God crushed his son to pay for our sins but Jesus rose from the dead as satisfactory payment for us. So friends, keep following Jesus. And he promises that he will give you grace. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. Grace that is greater than our sin. 
Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we follow you. That you would give us perseverance and strength so that we can wait and that we can prove that you are worthy of being followed, of being obeyed. And Father, for any person who does not know you and has not found peace with you through Christ, we pray that you would make his or her own need very clear. And in your love, you show them great mercy and open hearts to the sacrifice. Father, we pray that you would teach them to lay their sins upon Jesus, the one effective sacrifice for sin. And we'll give you all the glory. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.